0: Hello, everyone. This is ben- Mireille mm-hmm. Janeau, and you're listening to the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Joining me today is Professor Edley Wong, currently Associate Professor in the English Department at the University of Maryland. Professor Wong is the co editor of George Lippert's The Killers and the author of Neither Fugitive Nor Free Atlantic Slavery, Freedom Suits, and the Legal Culture of Travel. She's also the author of Racial Construction, Black Inclusion, Chinese Exclusion, and the Fictions of Citizenship, published by New York University Press, which is the book we'll be discussing today. Professor Wong, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, thank you for having me.
0: Not at all. Um, I wonder if you'd begin uh, by telling us a bit about yourself. Well,
1: you've covered a lot of the basics. I'm an associate professor of English at the University of Maryland. Um, previous to coming to Maryland, I was an associate professor at Rutgers, and much of my work is really invested in exploring the kind of expansive impact of Atlantic slavery and slave trade on American life, social relations, and culture. Um, and I have to really chart my inspiration to my uh, dissertation advisor and mentor, Saidia Hartman, whose brilliance and And just political passion really shaped, I think, a generation of graduate students coming through the halls of Berkeley English.
0: Great, great. So, so this um, can you can you say uh, more about how Dr. Hartman's uh, work and and mentorship uh, influenced your work?
1: Mm, certainly. So um, as a young undergraduate, um, I was an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley. And, and at the time in which I entered um, my undergraduate years, um, it was the summer of the 1992 um LA riots. And in terms of my intellectual development, it was really a flashpoint where um, there was really a call to develop or think about new racial paradigms for understanding kind of antagonisms and alliance, um, differentiation within kind of racial groups, really uh, an effort to kind of create new paradigms for understanding race in America, especially given the kind of mass media coverage, which really placed Afro-Asian tension and conflict at the forefront of U.S. public consciousness and the subsequent efforts by politicians and other kind of political commentators to really reframe that particular episode as a kind of black-white um, kind of binary, a black-white um, cultural kind of moment in U.S. history. So that really kind of catalyzed my interest in studying racial formations, understanding the nature of race, in American social life. And I brought that kind of interest to my graduate studies, which was also at UC Berkeley. And the person who really kind of catalyzed my interest in exploring in greater depth early African American cultural politics and cultural productions was Professor Saidia Hartman, who had just published her book Scenes of Subjection, and was currently working on her second monograph, Lose Your Mother. So it all really kind of came to a head under her mentorship, um, and the product of that is my first book, which you mentioned, "Neither Fugitive Nor Free," and it really continues on in a more kind of comparative and expansive framework in my second book, "Racial Reconstruction."
0: Great. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, that's and that's the uh, that's the book that we're. Um, Really kind of focusing on, uh, today, the first chapter of which is Cosa de Cuba, which, uh, subtitled American Literary Travels, Empire, and the Contract Coolie." And I wonder if you'd, uh, tell us, um, Tell us a bit about um, how that chapter unfolds um, i found uh, I found it a really fascinating chapter um, in no small part because you really uh, look closely at this uh, what you what you characterize as an underexamined archive of anglo american uh, Cuba travelogues.
1: really. Mm-hmm. Um, The book really begins with this first chapter that you
0: mentioned,
1: and my effort in this chapter was to recover this lesser-known episode um, in the archives of New World slavery, and in that sense, Um, The abolition of the slave trade and emancipation really triggered massive labor shortages throughout the British and Spanish Caribbean and later in the U.S. South, and planters and agriculturalists began turning to Asia, specifically China and India. Um, and began experimenting, really, with indentured or bonded laborers um, from these um, locations. Uh, Many of these laborers worked under contracts of 78 years. And the very idea of contract um, gave this labor force a semblance of free or voluntary labor, but the workers were subject to the coercions and exploitations common under the conditions of slavery. And specifically in this chapter, I focus on Cuba where slavery remained legal until 1886. So the importation of Chinese contract laborers who were often referred to as coolies or coolie slaves, they worked and labored alongside black Creole slaves and underwent similar kinds of treatment in terms of um, their lack of legal recourse um, and rights um, as laborers in Cuba from this period of roughly about 1847 to 74, where Cuba was very active in the um, kind of experimentation with this quasi-free labor force. Um, And the important thing to note was that the U.S. was hugely involved in this quote-unquote coolie trade, U.S. ships dominated the transport of Chinese laborers to Cuba. And in fact, this facilitated kind of a crisis within the U.S. Reformers were really active in petitioning state and federal um, governments to ban the U.S. participation in the coolie trade. Many saw it as a as a um, as another form of a slave trade that was banned in 1808, and saw it as a kind of interdiction of the U.S. you know anti foreign slave trade act. Um, all of this came to a head finally in 1862 when. President Lincoln finally passed the Cooley Trade Prohibition Act. And this was just months before the Emancipation Proclamation Act. And it uh, banned the U.S. participation in the transport of Chinese coolies to the Caribbean. And this chapter really kind of sets the stage for later chapters that really explore the kind of braided histories of African-American and Asian-American, specifically Chinese-American, struggles over the question of citizenship, immigration, and rights in the U.S. context. And this chapter really emphasizes how the specter of what became known as the Cooley slave trade influenced sectional debates over U.S. slavery. And later on, in the aftermath of slavery, black citizenship struggles in rather understudied and perhaps lesser known ways. Mm-hmm. And ultimately the chapter really begs the question of how we've come to understand the era of slavery and the histories um, that come from this period. Um, it's really kind of pushing us to think more expansively about what emancipation entailed mm-hmm. in the new world and in the West at large.
0: Right. Because you're, you you, you, one of the the bigger themes um, in this chapter is this idea of the U.S. defining post emancipation freedoms um, a lot of the time in relation to uh, what's going on in colonial Cuba um, and um, and this emergent idea of the the uh, the coolie slave. Which um, I would love it if you would kind of distinguish this notion of the the contract coolie versus the coolie slave and these um, sort of competing constructions that fall. Um, in my reading, um, which I'm, um, which may not be correct, along uh, sort of these abolitionist versus pro-slavery lines.
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. So the very idea of the coolie itself is deeply problematic. Um, the term itself, coolie, has many different points of origination: um, Tamil, Chinese, Gujarati um, um, languages. Um, in in one context, it's still seen as a, a as a rather derogatory term in in our contemporary context. Um, the term coolie, and in my book, I'm really using the term um, as a provocation to think about these um, ways in which forms of quasi-free or free labor um, really become a guise or um, uh, a way of let's say, covering under the legal apparatus of contract, i.e. You sign a contract voluntarily to, voluntarily to labor, as a way in which forms of kind of unfree labor continued, continued under the guise of free contract labor. Um, and so the work that I'm trying to do in this chapter and throughout the book is to really tease out what... Historian Moon Ho Jung has talked about as the coolie as a kind of conglomeration of racial imaginings. Mm. It's a kind of fantasy um, that was produced in a lot of the discourse in the late 19th century to really understand or come to terms with this racialized labor force that seemed at times to be a kind of harbinger of free labor and for others seemed a kind of uh, recapitulation of black enslaved labor, but in another form in Chinese coolie or South Asian coolie laborers. So In my book, I try to parse the difference between the figure of the contract, Cooley, and the way in which it became reimagined in the U.S. context as a Cooley slave, Uh as an argument against Chinese immigration to the U.S. Um, It often referred back to the past of abolitionist struggles to recast Chinese immigration which was voluntary and free to the U.S. as a new form of slavery, the kind of slavery of cheap laborers who would basically cause the ruination of America in the post-emancipation present, that it was a kind of throwback to a Earlier and feudal mode of labor, so a lot of the work is trying to parse the difference between how contract became a way for um, a new form of unfree labor to reemerge within the context of the West at large, the U.S. as well as the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, that's. Really really interesting because again, early in the book, you sort of meant you, you sort of posed the rhetorical question of whether the, the coolie is a throwback to slavery's past or a harbinger um, of freedom's future. And this sort of um, pivot point you also alluded to when you're talking about the, the, the reformers um, who initially welcomed indentured Chinese as this transitional uh, labor force, um, but then uh, sort of Later, sort of took a different turn, and and were forcefully sort of against um, against uh, Chinese labor. Um, so, I I wonder to just to, to sort of uh, again touch on something that you that you just mentioned, which is the the Cooley Trade Prohibition Act of eighteen sixty two. Um, I thought it very interesting that you. Um, cast it as arguably the last slave trade regulation and the first federal immigration restriction. And I wonder if you could um, sort of talk about that particular uh, sort of pivot point.
1: Well, there terms the um, the U.S. context in which I um, which I discuss in the book, it really serves as this kind of pivot point because it really kind of coalesces or kind of um, offers a kind of flashpoint for the kind of braided histories that I'm trying to explore in this book. Um, so 1862, just months before the Emancipation Proclamation, which would really reshape the nature of the Civil War, really explicitly articulate it uh, with not just the sectional crisis over states' rights, but specifically about an issue related to slavery in America. So just about roughly three months before that, the Cooley um, Prohibition Act um, is signed into being by Lincoln. And it really kind of serves as a kind of um, uh, anticipatory moment in which you have the kind of linking of something like the Past history of slave codes and slave laws in the U.S. with the articu with its articulation with a kind of emergent body of law that we might call U.S. immigration law, mm-hmm. and for me it really serves as a way to think through these histories of. Atlantic slavery, slave trade, abolition, and emancipation in ways that haven't really been thought through in relationship to the subsequent history of U.S. immigration law and the first kind of great wave of Asian immigrants to the U.S., uh, Chinese-American immigrants to the U.S. in in roughly the 70s and 80s, leading to the first um, racially-based Immigration Restriction Act, which is the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. So for my book, that moment, the the 1862 moment, really serves as, as you said, a really profound pivot point to, to look at how these kinds of histories that aren't often seen in relationship to each other really come together in this moment as the U.S. was really in the midst of a war to redefine itself as a free nation. And the outcomes, as we know, at that time were, were not so secure. So it's a really kind of pivotal moment, as you say in the book, and even in my estimation for um, the question of race and immigration um, in the subsequent decades after Reconstruction.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. And that um, sort of brings us, uh, I think, really nicely to, uh, to your second chapter, which, um, which is titled from Emancipation to Exclusion, Racial Analogy, and Afro-Asian Periodical Print Culture. And there you're using, um, you know, sort of close readings of of periodical print output um, to discuss, I think, in a different way, maybe uh, what you just alluded to, right? these histories that we're not used to uh, sort of examining uh, together. And and I wonder if you would uh, sort of talk about this and and talk about how these uh, sort of popular discourses sort of uh, juxtapose these uh, racialized uh, groups.
1: Absolutely. So um, the second chapter pulls away from perhaps a broader material histories of um, Chinese immigration to the West under the guise of coolism, to really focus specifically on a few under-examined writers, both African-American and Asian-American, to, to look at how these writers were, in a way, trying to theorize something like an understanding of racial difference or particularity in relationship to a kind of emergent understanding of American nationality. So I look to figures um, who have gone, you know, more or less understudied figures like James Williams, who produced a um, postbellum slave narrative. Um, he was a former slave in Maryland, escaped, um, had a really interesting and colorful life in Philadelphia, worked for the Underground Railroad, and later in life found himself in California in the West um, as a gold miner. And his really kind of hybrid Um, Postbellum Slave Narrative has these really interesting um, passages, uh, observations on the Chinese in California, Um, and they really start to think about kind of black identity formation in the era of emancipation in relationship to other minoritarian kind of groups, specifically Asian Americans. In the West. Um, Another figure that I look at is Frederick Douglass, who is very familiar and well known, but I focus specifically on um, speech of his um, entitled Composite Nation. Um, uh, It also goes under another title, Composite Nationality, in which he really offers perhaps one of the most profoundly emphatic endorsements of Chinese immigration, naturalization, and citizenship rights from the period. Um, the speech itself uh, dates from, I believe, 1869, and it is... Far more emphatic than many of his, you know, um, compatriots in the Republican Party. Uh, for example, Wendell Phillips was far more ambivalent about Chinese immigration to the U.S. And in the speech, again, like with James Williams' postbellum slave narrative. Douglas is really trying to theorize um, a really kind of complex and textured understanding of racial particularity and American nationality, one that is inclusive as opposed to exclusive in nature. And in many ways, I see these writers as trying to think through something that I had been struggling with, you know, in 1992 and onwards, mm-hmm. trying to come to an understanding of race in America that really attended to questions of at- antagonism, alliance, difference, as well as similarity. And this is, of course, uh, 200 years before my, you know, You know, attempts to understand this body of thought and um, racial thinking. Another figure that I look at um, is part of the larger recovery work that I do in the book, which is the work of Wang Chin-Fu. He is perhaps one of the earliest writers of Asian-American descent, specifically Chinese-American, um, a really prolific newspaper man with hundreds of articles um, in newspapers and journals and literary magazines of the day, and it's only been very recently that um, people started looking and looking at his work and rereading and revisiting his um, writings. Um, his earliest writing um, dates from 1874 and it's a interesting translation and translations and quotations since he really served as the kind of manuensis with um, editorial kind of power to to um, interpret and change the text as he saw fit. But he produced what might be the first work of Asian American literature in English. And it is um, a fugitive coolie narrative, the story of a Chinese coolie in Cuba by the name of Chun Yang Hing. And what's really interesting and what I kind of focus on in the book is how this earliest production of Asian American literature adapts and retailers um, a genre, the slave narrative that's so quintessentially African American and also, you know, been theorized and discussed as a kind of formative genre to African American um, identity formation and self-expression into an expression of Chinese American or Asian American life in the U.S., So that second chapter really starts focusing and pinpointing different figures, both African-American and Asian-American, who are offering maybe kind of a different way of understanding these vast kind of material changes that really came in the wake of emancipation and uneven emancipation throughout the new world um, as a kind of um, consequence of the long and complex legacies of slavery and the slave trade in the U.S. and Caribbean,
0: and in, in sort of making that um, that move from the the, the sort of um, legacy of the slave trade and the uneven emancipation that that follows, um, this notion of. of Americanization—that um, th- seemed like the, the, the key point in common between Wong and, and Douglas, right? Uh, this understanding of Americanization as a as an inclusionary um, process—it seemed that they both sort of had shared that perspective. Um, and I thought w- one of the one of the really interesting points that you make in that chapter is um, in Douglas's um, speech. Uh, the, 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 the uh, nation lecture talk about how he doesn't sort of, uh, merely dismiss this, uh, you know, these yellow peril fears, but, it, but he actually inverts, um, the, the dynamic of the invasion trope. And I, I wonder if he, if you could sort of talk about that, um, that sort of move, that really interesting kind of deft, uh, deft move, which, um, which he was able to make.
1: Oh, certainly. So, um, uh, for the benefit of your auditors who may not know the term yellow peril, I'll just explain a little bit, and then I'll discuss how Douglas was so deftly kind of retailers um, that, that figure in his speech. So for those of you less familiar with the term yellow peril is kind of a catch-all phrase um, to describe just the just the complex, vast body, visual, textual um, documents um, that gave expression to the fears of Asian immigration, specifically Chinese immigration to the U.S. at this time, often it... Um, focused on the dangers, moral, social, economic, political, that these foreign immigrants might pose. Oftentimes, it played on uh, a language of public safety against a kind of contagion that was specifically racialized as Chinese and or Asian or Asiatic. Um, And um, in my later chapter, which I'm sure we'll talk about in just a bit, I focus specifically on one particular iteration of the Yellow Peril trope, which was in the figure of the Chinese invader, the idea of the Chinese or Asiatic invasion of the U.S. or the West at large So in the Douglas speech, Composite Nation, um, what I found fascinating was that Douglas was very aware of this growing kind of discourse of yellow peril, the threat of Asiatic um, invasion and the taking over and destruction of American, quote unquote, American national values. And rather than dismissing it outright, what he does in the speech is to actually lay out the idea of the potential the potential kind of invasion or overtake of America by the kind of asiatic hordes or chinese hordes and his argument is that if America is truly the nation that it proposes to be that it shouldn't be threatened by the potential of this foreign difference invading its shores. That in fact, the kind of ideal of America is that it's a nation of religious freedom, that it's a nation of heterogeneity, so that it can take in difference without losing a sense of what and who it should be. So it's a kind of interesting take because in many ways he anticipates the kind of narratives of invasion that you'll see later on in the late 19th and early 20th century where there is this kind of playing out of the potential of Asiatic difference or hordes overtaking uh, the American nation, but rather than a dystopian understanding of what this difference will lead to, i.e. the destruction of America, Douglas sees it as invigorating, right. transforming, expanding the very basic tenets of what he imagines the ideal America to be. So that's, Fundamentally heterogeneity and difference as a kind of groundwork for how we might understand um, America. At the very moment, I mean, these are the early years after the Civil War, just as America was trying to figure out its national destiny, what it would look like, what it would become as a free nation after hundreds years of enslavement, a free America. And in Douglas's mind, it's an incredibly perhaps some might call it even utopian vision
0: mm-hmm.
1: that the fun- fundamental kind of building blocks of America would be Heterogeneity and difference, as opposed to homogeneity
0: and sameness. Yeah, and um, and we'll see. We'll Douglas's, um sort of use of the the counter, uh, counterfactual mm-hmm. is is interesting, and we'll see more of that uh, later in the book. Uh-huh. Uh, but I. But I wonder if you would also talk a little bit about um, the sort of uh, relating to what you just said about, about Douglas, right? This idea of, this, of the, the embrace of heterogeneity um, in the, in the future of the nation, uh, the sort of distinction between Wong Tianfu Fu and Yan Fu Li, who um, sort of uh, both, both, you know, uh, newspaper periodical, you know, had, um, impressive freelance um, careers, but had sort of, um, yeah, sort of a slightly different, um, or maybe sl- slightly might be to understate it, but very different um, sort of understandings of um, of how difference would be, could be absorbed into the emergent nation.
1: Okay. So uh, Wang Chun-Fu and Yang li are the two Asian American writers that I just need to recover and study in this chapter alongside Douglas and um, James Williams. And the primary difference between Yang Chun-Li and Wang Chun-Fu is their use of a um, discourse of Christianity. And this is one of the other arguments that I make in the book is that... Christian discourse, specifically as it other Chinese as heathens, became a primary way in which uh, anti-Chinese immigrant forces. Attempted to really push through um, Chinese immigration restrictions. The idea that the Chinese were heathens, non-Christians, and hence not imagined as part of the manifest destiny of America as a Christian nation. That was one of the kind of planks of the anti-Chinese movement. And so the two kind of activist Chinese figures that I study, Wong and Lee. Um, were both very prolific newspaper men, but they took two very different tactics towards this discourse of Christian kind of heathenism, or um, Christian discourse of uh, heathenism that other Chinese um, Wang, in, in a very characteristic, kind of bombastic tone, produced a, a, a a pretty well-known essay, perhaps the most well-known of his entire oeuvre, his body of work, um, which is Why I Am a Heathen, mm-hmm. um, which is a satirical and scathing denunciation of Christianity. Um, and yan Fin Lee wrote back with a rebuttal, um, which basically asserts that Wong's argument is bombastic and also uh, misses the point in terms of the ideals of Christian fellowship, um, which is really based on an idea of egalitarianism and brotherhood or sisterhood. Um, and so you see in, in my chapter how these two prominent Asian-American, early Asian-American activist writers were trying to disentangle and disarticulate um, this problematic discourse Mm -hmm. um, in which you see in Douglass' speech, he addresses by saying, well, the U.S., America was supposed to be a country founded on religious freedom and that this particular way in which um, kind of polemicists have been attacking Chinese immigrants, that they're not Christian, hence they are not part of the vision of America, is – Groundless in the sense that it, it really is counterintuitive to the very kind of fundamental or foundational ideals of America. So you see these three different kind of writers taking on this very kind of persuasive, unfortunately, and compelling argument, the non-Christian um, morality um, of Chinese immigrants as one of the kind of primary ways in which Chinese Anti-Chinese agitators sought to push forward restrictions against immigrants to the U.S.
0: Yeah, and it it sort of, as you uh, sort of described the book, it sort of provides this convenient cover and kind of sidesteps these would-be accusations of white supremacy by making exclusion about religion and morality rather than, you know, sort of um, race-based. Um,
1: is that, yeah. well, I just have one more maybe um, point to make too, is that um, the Christian discourse that I discuss in this book and, and how it's kind of triangulated amongst Douglas, Lee, and Wong, um, it was one of the primary kind of racial scripts that many kind of critics and commentators from this period, um, I Identified as one of those kind of um, racial typologies that had been once used against African Americans during the era of slavery to disenfranchise them and also to remove them from the community of the nation and. By the time you get to kind of the reconstruction era, you have this kind of really problematic dialectic that pivots on the question of Christianity, which is the dialectic of black inclusion, Chinese exclusion. So proponents of black citizenship often return to this narrative of Christianity saying, well, blacks are included within the imagination of America now after slavery, after the Civil War, because they're part of the Christian fellowship that we envision this nation to be. However, Chinese... They're not Christian, should be excluded because they serve as some kind of dangerous, kind of immoral, amoral force in the country. So, you have kind of political figures who were pretty um, significant and influential, like James G. Blaine, whom I study also in this chapter, who was one of the moderate Republican, but Republican architects of the Reconstruction Amendments, who comes out in force against Chinese immigration. Mm -hmm. So he's able to kind of harmonize what seemed to even a lot of critics at that time as a very hypocritical position to be a proponent for African-American rights and citizenship, yet at the same time deny citizenship, naturalization, and immigration to another group the Chinese specifically, and part of that is the way in which that Christian narrative um, was a kind of way in which these seemingly opposing positions could be harmonized in a way that did away with the kind of contradiction, I guess, for lack of a better word, that would seem um, Blaine's position. And, and part of the chapter is also looking at how many of these Black writers identified racial scripts like this Christian heathenism discourse um, as a way in which one racialized minority group was disenfranchised and attacked and, how these racial scripts migrate or get repurposed mm-hmm. by different stakeholders mm-hmm. to disenfranchise and suppress other racialized minority groups
0: mm-hmm. yeah and um yeah, there's so much, there's, there's so much that's interesting, uh, in that, right. This idea of the, you know, the political opportunism, um, and like you said, sort of the, the harmonizing of, um, of Chinese exclusion with, you know, um, these, uh, the egalitarian principles, at least on, uh, you know, um, so, so called, uh, of the postbellum period. Um, and I wonder so, Maybe this this kind of leads us um, to to the the third chapter, uh, which is which is titled "American Futures Past: The Counterfactual Histories of Chinese Invasion," um, where you really talk about this invasion uh, invasion fiction, and you did a really uh, very nice outline of of the the Yellow Peril, right? Um, yeah. And um, in in chapter three, you sort of talk uh, about. Um, invasion fiction having sort of measurable effect on Chinese immigration case law, um, and, and how, how it sort of puts the, the question of sovereignty, uh, um, center stage. And so I wonder if you would sort of talk about that. And also, uh, something else that I found really, really interesting was this, uh, the, the, the subgenres represented by Carruthers and Lindsay and how they again, um, uh, turn this uh, yellow carol trope on its head.
1: Certainly. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, this chapter takes a slightly different tack from the previous two. So the first one tries to chart this larger kind of episode in the archives of Atlantic slavery, the the kind of rise of um, in- Asian indentured laborers to the West in the wake of emancipation and experimentations with quasi-free labor. The second chapter, as we just talked about, focuses more on individual figures and writers, thinkers like Douglas, Wong, Lee, Williams. The third chapter focuses more specifically on the development of a genre. And as I mentioned, the genre, it's a subgenre, the Chinese invasion subgenre. And, there hasn't been as much work done on these narratives. Um, there was an early text that basically offered a kind of compendium of the invasion subgenre, but that came out in 1982. And what I found is I kind of started reading widely um, these these narratives were extremely popular and also very localized. Um, Many of them were produced, um, you know, not surprisingly in the Pacific coast states where Chinese immigration uh, was um, at its height um, and was part of, the overarching kind of anti-Chinese movement that really came to power in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, especially in the West. Um, The subgenre itself is really interesting. Um, It does imagine a future America um, overrun, um, destroyed, invaded by, often, Asian Chinese fifth calmness. So uh, the enemy within trope, um, which overtakes America from within. And the, there's a real kind of um, uh, cautionary narrative with this sub-genre which explores what might happen if we loosen up immigration restrictions, if we offer naturalization and citizenship rights to Chinese Americans. And in many ways, what I found really interesting as I studied this peculiar subgenre was the way in which many of the texts really the kind of Uh, specter, let's say, of these narratives was the threat and anxiety over the expansion of black political power in the wake of Reconstruction. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Many of these stories really explored what would happen to America if Chinese Americans were allowed to become naturalized citizens, and this is one of the important aspects of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, was that not only did exclude Chinese laborers, um, labor migrants from coming to the U.S., it also prevented their naturalization to citizenship. Mm-hmm so many of these books as I in stories and novels and short stories that I looked at in this subgenre really were given voice through the medium of Chinese immigration fears fears also about black citizenship
0: mm-hmm.
1: black rights and the expansion of black voting power specifically in the nation.
0: Mm-hmm. What? And I'm not sure if you were you were finished that thought. Oh, sure. Um, Go ahead. Well, because I I I think that so this idea of you know these this subgenre serving you know is this uh, sort of macro cautionary uh, cautionary tale um, with these very sort of elaborate um, you said counterfactual histories. They're almost. There's almost this sort of um, laughable paradox that you also talk about, which is that you've got these sort of representations of, on the one hand, the abject coolie slave, and on the other hand, you know, this, as, as you put it, villainous agents of foreign aggression, which, you know, which <laughs> paradoxically incite both pathos and fear as you as you also state in the chapter and and those really seem like seem to almost laughably undercut this really kind of threatening um threatening specter because uh, you know it's, well, you know which one is it right um and I, I sort of wonder if you would talk about that and and also um the part of part of uh what you just alluded to as well this fear of of increased um uh, black political power, African American political power, this uh, subgenre also erases the African American yes. presence um, in these future imaginings, um, as well as Native American, the Native American presence in the past. And I wonder if you'd, um, yeah, talk about that.
1: I'd be happy to. Thank you for reminding me of the really interesting and ideas of the subgenre. <laughs> So, yes, the, the depiction of Chinese aggressors is so complex. It's Janet's face. So at once they're abject, coolie slaves. Um, on the other hand, they're villainous agents. They're fifth columnists. They're the enemy within. That just, They're just biding their time to take over the country and destroy us and us you know facetiously all Americans white Americans um, in their wake so there's really kind of this interesting kind of interplay and in many ways the kind of weird harmonization like the harmonization you get with a figure like James G. Blaine a proponent of black citizenship but also a proponent of Chinese um, immigration restriction there's this weird way in which the narrative is able to kind of harmonize these opposites Um, the temporal structure as you mentioned, of these narratives are also really interesting. So even though they really channel the anxiety of black citizenship and voting rights in a post-Reconstruction America, the stories themselves play with demography in such a strange way. You'll see that in many of these stories that I talk about, the black presence starts to winnow away from the country. So just as the threat of Asian invasion increases, the Black population precipitously declines. Sometimes it's from self Um, exile or deportation in the sense that, you know, the African-American population has decided to move elsewhere, back to Africa in some of these narratives. Some of them, they just mysteriously, the demography of black Americans just declines, just drops off to, 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 basically zero, so that you have a realignment of the impending race war that's often at the heart of these invasion um, narratives between the white and yellow race. So there's this interesting way in which the threat is both very much of the emotional substructure of these narratives, the threat of black political power. At the same time, the plots will often try to uh, mitigate the threat by literally occulting, disappearing all black Americans from the plot of the book. Okay. The other aspect, and this is a strange temporal structure of these narratives. I mean, you could arguably say that this is an early form of science fiction writing. Um, the books and short stories that I look at um, have a really interesting recursive structure. Often you have a figure A historian, um, in some cases, who comes back, who somehow travels from the future to the past, which is, of course, our present, to warn us in this moment as to what will happen to the future of America if we do not take a strong stance against Chinese immigration so that you have this really interesting recursive structure built into these invasion narratives. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, my shorthand for them is that they're counterfactual histories. They're, they're speculative speculative fictions in that they're imagining what this future will be, but it's a future in the story that's already happened, mm-hmm. hence the cautionary nature of these tales. The other aspect of it, just as the African-American um, demographic in the U.S. withers away mysteriously in many of the plots of these stories. Um, some of these stories also have this interesting way in which white Americans or Anglo-Saxon Americans become the new indigenous population, mm-hmm. hence quote-unquote Native Americans in the wake of Chinese occupation, colonization, and invasion. So there's an interesting way in which Native Americans, too, are elided from the history of America in these strange kind of time travel narratives um, of Asian invasion so that it's white Americans, Anglo-Saxon Americans, who become now the true indigenous population of the U.S. uprooted, expropriated from their soil by these invading foreigners, these Chinese or Asiatic others. So there's really interesting and complex kind of racial dynamics that get worked into many of these stories. And You had mentioned the, let's say, counter-narratives of Chinese invasion that I um, recovered, specifically the short stories of Rachel Lindsay, who's a white American author, primarily poet, and also an African-American writer by the name of James Carruthers. Mm -hmm. Um, As I was doing my research, I came across um, their short stories in um, Du Bois' The Crisis magazine, which was, for me, a kind of surprising discovery because I didn't expect to find Asian invasion narratives in the crisis magazine. But as I read them and, and started studying them, what's really interesting is that they are much in the vein of the Douglas speech composite nation in that they offer kind of counter narrative of Chinese invasion. So they use the, the genre, but they kind of flip the kind of um, racist dynamics of the genre on its head. So Lindsay's short story, which is entitled The Golden-Faced People, a story of the Chinese conquest of America, and you can already get a sense of the playfulness of the title, um, his narrative really explores um, the question of racial, white racial hegemony in the U.S. by inverting the dynamic, the black-white dynamic of Jim Crow America onto the Asian white dynamic of a future America, a thousand years hence, in which the Chinese have conquered and colonized America and now are the majority population in the country. And so he has a white narrator kind of undergo what W.E.B. Du Bois talks about as double consciousness. (laughs) And it's all about this sense of the, the, the kind of Anxiety, disgust, his sense of tuness of the whiteness of his skin vis a vis his now Asian superiors, and of course, the story um, reveals itself to be a dream sequence. So the narrator wakes up; he's in the present moment, which is roughly 1914, um, the time of the story's publication, and he sees lynched bodies before him, an African-American, an Asian-American, a Greek-American. And and the story really shows us, or at least attempts to kind of interrogate the nature of white supremacy in the U.S., but also articulates something like anti-Black racial violence with nativist attacks against different foreign immigrants, different foreign immigrant populations to the U.S. So it really uses that really problematic invasion subgenre, but then really flips it on its head to really explore the kind of currents, the uh, racial animus of kind of white ideology um, and white supremacy in this particular period, the period of the kind of nadir of race relations in really interesting and critically um, just capacious ways. You see this, too, with James Carruthers, um, and his story was published just the same year, in fact, as Rachel Lindsay. So it was this kind of bumper, this year of a bumper crop of really interesting kind of counter-narratives of Chinese invasion in the Crisis magazine. And his story is entitled A Man They Didn't Know. And this one really explores or flirts with the idea of um, kind of black traders to the nation. In fact, it's looking at how black identifications uh, might surpass. The framework of the nation so that you have kind of this idea that black Americans have become so disaffected mm-hmm. by the institutional racism of the U.S. that they're actually con- contemplating and actually forging alliances with Asian invaders, mm-hmm. anti-colonial kind of revolutionaries in Mexico and Hawaii. And he really envisions this kind of multiracial, anti-colonial, anti-U.S. kind of um, collaboration, um, which in the end becomes a way to really think about um, Black identity formation in the U.S. in ways that elude perhaps the kind of um, strictures or or binds of the nation mm-hmm. um, kind of identifications that actually might be inimical to a uh, national identity. Um, and, you know, the title itself is, is so ambiguous, a man they didn't know, which speaks to the main figure who is an African American, um, former boxer. He kind of represents the idea of the black masses. He finally is convinced to fight for the U.S. in this imagined future kind of war with um, Japan in this particular instance, but Asiatic forces threatening to um, take over the U.S. He dies. And the kind of irony of the story is that he is the man They didn't know. So it really emphasizes um, the kind of resistance to capture, the resistance to full understanding Uh um, of his particular experience. Um, And it really kind of challenges um, an idea of um, knowing, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, the black experience as it's represented in this kind of figure of the black populace, um, the figure of Blackburn who dies in the end.
0: Ah, that's Yeah, that's really interesting. I don't think that I sort of, um, uh, well, I'm now thinking about this idea of, of knowing and the knowable, um, which which in some sense brings us back to uh, um, the work of Wang Chin-Fu, um, who's, sort of big project, um, in some sense was, was this idea of the, of, uh, of making knowable, um, um, a certain, um, a certain Chinese figure. But, um, but I, I'd like to, I definitely like for you to, um, to talk sort of as you do in your conclusion about, um, uh, about this, uh, the sort of changing uh, racial landscape um, of the Reconstruction era and, and how, you know, all of these things, immigration, naturalization, um, and citizenship policies um, had sort of this impact on both Asian American politics and, um, and African American life, which is what you delve into um, in the conclusion. But, um, but slightly before that, um, another sort of... Um, uh, subgenre that you discuss and this is in the fourth chapter is is the boycott novel um, mm-hmm. and uh and it, it- sort of emerges at a really interesting point, right? You talk about how at the end of the 19th century, China is is now, the Chinese market is now needed uh, to sort of absorb um, a lot of this U.S. industrial surplus um, and is needed more so than uh, as a source of cheap labor. Um, And I sort of wonder if you could sort of talk about how the boycott novel relates to that, um, that pretty significant change. Um, and, uh, yeah.
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, so the last chapter, um, moves its focus away specifically from the U.S. context, more towards, um, the Chinese context. And, and I wanted to offer this other kind of more transnational perspective. So among the, many different cultural texts that I explore in that chapter, a good majority of which is in translation. I look at the boycott novel, um, which is in relationship to actually the 1905 Chinese boycott of U.S. goods. Um, It was one of the largest um, mass-based protests against U.S domestic and foreign policies against Chinese and Chinese Americans um, at the time. Um, It didn't last for very long, but it did create an incredible um, body of newspaper responses. There was a lot of fear that this would signal the end of U.S. kind of neocolonial expansion um, to Asia, specifically China, which, as you said, was really viewed as a potential market to absorb the surplus overproduction of the U.S. economy. So rather than focusing on um, the movement or the kind of absorption of cheap laboring bodies from China, the U.S. had shifted to kind of um, using China as a kind of dumping grounds for its surplus overproduction. So that was a kind of charts that kind of change in terms of Sino-U.S. relations over this period of roughly maybe four decades. Um, and so the boycott novel um, is are a series of Chinese language um, texts that emerged in the wake of this mass protest of U.S. goods. Um, and it happened not just in China, but it was coordinated with Chinese in Japan and Singapore British and British Vancouver, Canada, mm-hmm. Hawaii, and other points on the globe. And the boycott was what it was, a boycott of all things American. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the boycott itself didn't last for very long, as many Chinese scholars have noted. But what it did produce in its wake was a body of literature, of fictions that was really invested in kind of exploring kind of the diaspora connections. Um, in many ways, um, the text of the boycott novel is uh, a translation by Lin Xu, who is the kind of uh, preeminent translator of Western text to China. And one of the kind of flashpoint texts that he translated in the first American novel that was translated in China was Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, it was translated, and it was a tandem translation. That was the process that he used. He worked with another um, translator to produce the text in classical Chinese. It was 1901. And in that text what Lin Xu attempts to do is actually translate Uncle Tom's Cabin to address the political situation of really bellicose U.S. policies towards China. Mm-hmm. And in the preface in the afterward, he explicitly positions his translation as a kind of literary manifesto or protest against U.S. policies, against Chinese immigration, as well as U.S. neocolonial incursions in China at this time. And what he does in that text is really focus on figures um, like um, Harris, and Eliza, and in fact, downplays a figure like Uncle Tom. Mm -hmm. And the translation ends really with Harris's kind of um, pronouncement of a kind of African nationality, because if, for those of you familiar with Uncle Tom's Cabin, this is been oftentimes cited as the most problematic aspect of of this novel is that George Harris and his family relocates. They leave America and they go to Liberia to start anew, away from the U.S. nation state. And it's often referred to as a separatist ending of the novel. But for a figure like Lin Shu, he actually seized on that idea of an African nationality, the separatist Ending as a way to think through a kind of Chinese nationalism
0: mm-hmm.
1: in opposition to U.S. neocolonial practices, policies, and ideologies. And it really works on this idea of a kind of sentimentalism mm-hmm. that gets translated to a U.S. context as a kind of way to position Chinese in the diaspora in all different parts of the globe as a kind of communal identification vis-a-vis the incursions of America. And you see a lot of this kind of sentimental structure coming into play with the genre of the boycott novel, where you have a similar attempt to kind of Give voice to uh, communal identity forged in relation to U.S. kind of um, hostility or attacks, anti-Chinese um, imagery as well as policies. So that this entire last chapter is really trying to think through, in translation, how Chinese writers were trying to. Address, respond to, give voice mm-hmm. to a kind of Chinese identity formation vis-a-vis U.S. exclusionist, restrictive, and neo-colonial policies.
0: Yeah, and um, <clears throat> yeah, there's a lot, a lot to uh, a lot to think about, um, a lot to think about there, and uh, I. I, I found um, yeah this this last chapter um, really really fascinating um, particularly because a lot of the um, a lot of the exclusion um, <clears throat> the rationale for the exclusion was predicated on uh, some of these sort of deep you know uh, some of this othering that really had this dehumanizing tone of you know the the uh, the home lives, you know, were questioned and as not very, as being sort of fundamentally unAmerican and that kind of thing. So this idea of, of um, these narratives recuperating that and, and and as you said, sort of um, leading to this uh, very specific um, identity formation is really an interesting, very interesting one. Um, I. This has been a really, um, really fascinating discussion for me. And I really, again, enjoyed um, <clears throat> enjoyed reading the book. And uh, I'm really thrilled to have had the opportunity to uh, discuss it with you at length. Um, I wonder if you would uh, sort of tell us what, what you're uh, currently working on. Sure.
1: Yeah. So... I'm actually just at the beginning of a third book project. Um, and much of it, I believe will center on um, a recently recovered narrative, which is um, Caleb Smith's edited um, Austin Reed, The Haunted Convict. It's um, the first black prison narrative in American literature. Um, it was never published in its time. Um, it was a manuscript that was discovered by Yale archivists that has recently been published and made available to the public in Book 4 just last year. Um, and the next project, I think, actually goes back in time a little bit um, and goes back to the antebellum period and even beyond, perhaps to even the 18th century. And I'm really interested in looking at the system of indenture mm. as it migrated from um, the... European or British context to the US mm-hmm. and particularly the indenture uh the indenturing of young children. Um in the US context, indenture was predominantly uh, a mode in which Native American and African American minors um were bound by contract, even though they were minors, actually, um children were allowed to to make indenture contracts before they were of uh, an age of maturity in which you have um, what would become, to my mind, a kind of form of unfree labor under the aegis of contract in a different context. So in many ways, it's kind of expanding on the work that I did in this most recent book, looking at Chinese bonded or indentured labor, but going backwards in time to look at its formation an establishment within the U.S. in the early, in the late 18th and early 19th century as a particular way in which children were coerced into forms of labor and labor bondage, um, even in under the auspices or guise of free labor. And I'm emphasizing this because the Austin Reed narrative begins with his indenture chip and indenture quickly turns into um, a lifetime of um, imprisonment uh, reformatories and then imprisonment in Auburn state. And I think the second book, and and it's a, I'm at the very early stages, I'm really interested in looking at how indenture is one of those um, systems of coerce labor coercion that, is relatively unchallenged mm-hmm. throughout the century. So that by the time you have reconstruction, you have Freedmen Bureau agents indenturing black children, regardless of parents' decisions or um, preferences, as a way to mitigate black dependency on federal aid. Mm-hmm. Um, indenture is still actually a term that is in use in certain um uh skilled crafts and trades. Mm-hmm. So I ultimately I think I'm really interested in thinking about how indenture as a construct within American um, legal as well as um, labor history has been a way in which forms of unfreedom have continued and particularly racialized unfreedom um, for a demographic um, that perhaps only now is Becoming increasingly kind of studied, which is children, minors.
0: Mm
1: Yeah.
0: Well, that sounds like a great project, and I look forward to uh, hearing more about it as as it develops, and certainly uh, you know once it's once it's been published. Um, uh, Thank you. Uh, again, uh, Professor Wong, for uh, for coming on the show. Um, folks, you've uh, had the pleasure of listening to Professor Edley Wong, the author of Racial Reconstruction, Black Inclusion, Chinese Exclusion, and the Fictions of Citizenship, uh, here on the New Books in African American Studies podcast. Thanks again, uh, Professor Wong, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me and for all the questions. None at all, and uh, folks, we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.